All right, so thank you for listening. You're listening to the Anthro Alert podcast, where we take our live show from USF Bulls Radio, and we publish it here for you to listen at your enjoyment. Um, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Bulls. You're listening to Bulls Radio, WSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and always streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com and the TuneIn app. If you want to learn more, you can go to bullsradio.org. It's 2 o'clock on Friday afternoon. It's a little bit cloudy today, but the weather feels great, so that makes me feel good on the inside. Uh, it's not too hot yet, so I'm enjoying the weather, and I hope you all are too. So it's 2 o'clock, and you know what that means. This is the new time slot for Anthro Alert. We are now 2 to 4 instead of 3 to 4, so to your guys' pleasure, we now have two hours of anthropology conversations. So if you're not familiar with AnthroAlert, let me tell you a little bit about what we do here. So here on Bulls Radio, this show is simply about why anthropology matters, what it is, and how we use it. Each week we'll discuss how anthropology is relevant, and over time we feature various guests here uh, from the Department of Anthropology here at USF, graduate students and professors to discuss their research and have them weigh in on everyday topics and current events. We believe this is a good opportunity for us as uh, students of anthropology and budding anthropologists uh, to better connect with the USF community and to raise awareness of the value of an anthropological perspective. We like to preface our show each week with the disclaimer that the statements we make and the opinions that we express here on AnthroAlert are ours and ours alone, and they may not necessarily reflect or be representative of anthropology as a discipline, of the USF Anthropology Department, of student government, or of USF as an institution. Okay, with all of that out of the way, we can get started with the conversation. We have a full house today in the studio. We have Renee and I. Hi, everybody. What is going on? I'm Spencer. And we also have a guest host who has graciously donated her time. And she's she was on the show last week, and she got the bug, and she just couldn't resist coming back. Laura? Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for having me back. Yep. We, we sucked her in. She's going to be a part of the show, hopefully. Um, but we we like to have you here this week. Anyone that's interested in AnthroAlert obviously gets us excited. So our guest here is Kelsey. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So she is a Ph.D. student uh, here in the department. For uh, She's a forensic anthropology student and scholar. Um, so <laughs> we're happy to have her on the show today. Yeah, and, and uh, today as we're going through our conversation, uh, you know, be sure, be sure to check us out, you know, uh, Check us out on anthroalert.com. Send us a text message, 802-552-4487. Uh, you can call in the show, 813-974-9285. Um, for sure, Twitter. That's where we're at, at anthroalert. Mm. Uh, we will respond. Yeah, we want to know what you guys are thinking, what you guys, what your inquiries are as you listen to the show, and, and we're going to try to answer some of those. So let's hop right into some of the very fascinating work that Kelsey has done and will be doing in the future. So can you just kind of explain, well, we'll be talking about your master's uh, research. Can you explain a little bit about what you did? Yeah, so um, in from 2012 to 2014, um, I went to Texas State University, uh, which is in San Marcos, Texas. And while I was there, I was a part of what we called Operation Identification. 
Um, that began in um, 2013, and it was a result of the surge of deaths on the Texas-Mexico border um, of all the migrants that were dying crossing the border. And so what we really were doing where we were trying to identify all of these migrants that died crossing the border, um, many of which, uh, once they were found, they were then um, buried in um, graves in a uh, pauper cemetery or, um, you know, they, they were not buried in caskets. They were, you know, there's not a lot of money to go to be able to bury them. Um, and a lot of these individuals, um, there's really no chance to identify them because they were simply buried once they were found. Um, and so this project um, really began um, as a response to this crisis. Um, we had a surge of deaths uh, from 2000 to 2016. Um, previously, the, the decade before that, there, we were averaging only about 12 deaths per year um, in uh, the state of Arizona. And then from 2000 to 2016, there was a surge of 156 deaths a year along the border. And that was just in Arizona. Um, and in 2012, Texas actually surpassed Arizona in deaths. So a lot more migrants were dying crossing the border in Texas than those that were dying crossing in Arizona. Um, Brooks County was averaging about 100 deaths per year. Brooks County is not on the border in Texas. It's actually about 90 miles north of the border. And the reason that so many people were dying in this county specifically is that you have heavy border patrol on the border itself. And so people would get smuggled in with, by the coyotes, by the people that they would pay to transport them into the U.S., and the coyotes would drop them off before uh, the inland border. So you have, you have border patrol that's on the border, but then you also have border patrol that's inland on the major highways. So the coyotes would drop them off, you know, say 15 to 20 miles before they'd have to hit that border checkpoint, and then say, good luck, we'll pick you up in 30 miles. You have to walk that on foot. And that's across miles and miles of desert and scrubland. Um, and so a lot of individuals end up dying from hyperthermia and hypothermia. They get too cold at night because it's the desert and the temperature drastically drops. And they get too hot during the day because they're walking in the desert. Um, and so you have this surge of deaths in this county specifically where it became a crisis. And the county didn't have enough people to actually be able to handle all of these deaths. And so a lot of these individuals were then buried in a cemetery, in Sacred Heart Cemetery in Falfurious, Texas. And so that's where we came in. In 2013, Texas State partnered with Baylor and the University of Indianapolis, and we exhumed these remains to try to identify them. So that's kind of the background information. Um, we exhumed all of the individuals. Um, a lot of them were buried with just metal tin placards that just said unknown female, unknown male, or simply unknown. And sometimes it would also say where the person was found, say on King's Ranch or 
whatever ranch they were found on. But when we were exhuming these remains, we were finding that they really weren't individually buried. You had mass graves. So you would have one grave marker, but then you would have four individuals buried there. And so we exhumed a lot more individuals than we thought were buried in that cemetery, and then we brought them back to Texas State for analysis. Our analysis, uh, we were trying to do skeletal analysis. So as a forensic anthropologist, what we're really doing is looking at human skeletal variation to try to identify um, this person's sex. Are they male or female? Are they, um, what age are they? Uh, how long have they been deceased? Um, trying to figure out who these people are. And so we uh, brought them back to Texas State. We cleaned up all of the remains in a process that we call maceration, which is just cleaning up of all of the bones, removing all of the soft tissue with detergent and water and brushes. And uh, then we also went through all of the personal effects. So all of the clothing that they were wearing, all of the things in their pockets. Um, and you'd be amazed at what we found. People would be buried in their full clothes that they were found in. And we would find notes in their pockets. Uh, US, we found a USB drive in one of them, but we'll never know what was on it because it got all yucky from being buried with that person. Um, we found, you know, notes with phone numbers written on them, uh, religious memorabilia, medicine, food, candy wrappers, you name it, we found it on an individual. And so we, we use all of that information to try to help identify this person. Maybe we can narrow down country of origin. Um, maybe we could potentially read what the prescription was for so that we could then utilize that for uh, who's missing, who are the missing people, and you know who has an asthma problem out of these people. Um, so we went through and we would clean up all the skeletal remains, do that analysis, clean up all the personal effects, photograph all of the personal effects so that maybe someone out there would recognize a necklace or they would recognize, you know, that specific shirt or they had initials sewn into their pants. Anything that might trigger someone's memory of who that person was so then we can say, yes, this is, you know, my brother, father, sister, mother who mm -hmm. went missing mm -hmm. while they tried to cross the border. How did you get that type of information, like, out to maybe like reach a family member or someone that may recognize some of that personal effect? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, we utilize what is called NamUs. It's an online database. It's the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System. And it is a federally funded national database that's free. So anyone can go online to NamUs. And you can, there's a missing person side of it, and there's an unidentified person side of it. So if your loved one goes missing and you report it to law enforcement, law enforcement can then enter them into this database, and you're entering in all the demographic information. When was this person last seen? What were they wearing? What is their age, sex, height, weight, race, all of that? 
And so with the migrants, we were really trying to upload all of this information into this database and put it out there. And there's also nonprofits out there as well that are working on this humanitarian crisis that's going on on the border right now, uh, where they're working with family members of people that have gone missing that maybe they don't want to go to law enforcement for obvious reasons. Um, so they sort of act as a intermediate entity to connect what we know about these unidentified persons and then the family members that have missing loved ones. So um, do you have a number of maybe how many people out of the bodies that you exhumed, like uh, you actually gathered enough information to maybe identify identify who they were or maybe uh, did get in contact with family or, or friends? So I was at Texas State from uh, 2012 to 2014, and um, we while I was there, uh, I only was able to work on this project for one year. Mm-hmm. While I was there for that one year, we had two IDs. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was a positive identification, um, which means that DNA was matched. And um, ironically with this person, and I can talk more about this, but ironically with this person, they were found with an ID in their pocket. Well, Mm. it wasn't in their pocket. It was in their um, shoe. They put Mm. it in their shoe. And they had this ID on them this entire time. And when they were found deceased, their personal effects were never searched. And all it took was a graduate student to type in this person's name and then country of origin that was on this ID, and it popped up on Google saying that this was a missing person reported from, you know, Guatemala. And um, so with that person, uh, she had three children and her husband who all – she went missing while she was crossing, and they all submitted – well, her children and her mother submitted DNA samples. And so that was positively identified with the DNA. And um, the consulate was um, going to be picking up her remains to then uh, repatriate those to her family. Um, another uh, presumptive ID, so it's not positive unless it's through DNA or if you can compare like dental radiographs or living with deceased uh, x-rays, say like chest x-rays or something like that. Uh, This presumptive ID was an individual that was, his brother reported him missing. He was crossing at the time with his brother. And his brother, uh, he ended up getting hurt, the the deceased, uh, got hurt, hurt his knee, took off his flannel, and he tied it in a knot around his knee. And he convinced his brother, no, 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 you go on without me, and left his brother underneath a tree. And so the brother called 911 and reported, hey, my brother is here. He needs medical attention. And he was never, he was not recovered. Um, At least was never recovered by Border Patrol agents or an ambulance or anything where he could actually get the, the help that he needed. And ultimately he perished under that tree um, was found later by Border Patrol agents and then buried in an unidentified grave. So when we exhumed him, we had this story, you know, of all these people. Uh, the brother had reported the story, and 
we as soon as we opened up this you know body bag that has this deceased individual in it there's a flannel right around his knee and he fit the biological profile he was the correct age and height and ancestry and all of that that we it was presumptively him and we were waiting to do a dna match so so um so that actually prompts a question that i have then is and this is just a general question like we don't necessarily have to answer it but like like whose responsibility is it to a, attempt to just i mean when a, a body is found anywhere you know in in um some region along the border or even here in florida like what like whose responsibility is it to try and identify the remains and contact um, loved ones right so by law by federal law any death that goes unwitnessed uh, needs to have an autopsy by law it's across the board so if you have an unwitnessed death you know this could be anything from you you pass away in your own home to you're found you know, in the woods because you died on a walk or something. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. If your death is unwitnessed, you have to have an autopsy. And so it is then the responsibility of either the medical examiner's office or the coroner's office to try to um, identify who this person is. But they also work with law enforcement with this as well. So it's sort of they're both working on it. Um, and... The problem that they were having in Brooks County, Texas, is that there were so many migrants that were dying that it completely overwhelmed their system, which is not an excuse, but it's sort of an explanation as to why we saw what we were seeing. So individuals were being buried without autopsies. We know that for a fact. Um, we know that because... Number one, first thing that a medical examiner's office does when they do an autopsy is they remove clothing from the remains. They remove the clothing, um, they document it, they search the personal effects because, hey, we got to find out who this person is. Um, and then they, they'll look at the body. And sometimes they'll just do what's called an external autopsy where maybe they're just taking some blood and they'll do a toxicology screen. Um, but then other times there's the full-on autopsy that we think of where they're actually, you know, cutting and going into the body and looking at the organs. Um, and when you have an external, you're always, or um, excuse me, a full-on autopsy, you will always have the brain looked at. So they cut into the skull to do that, and they do that Y incision in the uh, abdomen or the, the trunk as well. So you're cutting through bones. So... When we exhumed these bodies, number one, they were fully clothed, so we know that there was never an external. And then the ones that weren't clothed, um, which were very few and far between, there was no evidence of autopsy on the vast majority. I think only two or three of them had been autopsied before. So this was a blatant disregard for protocol, mm -hmm. um, just bottom line. Um, and so a lot of these individuals, you know, DNA wasn't even taken for them either. Mm. So how are you going to identify someone if you have, if you're not attempting an autopsy, you're not attempting to search the personal effects, and you're not taking a DNA sample? Mm. Is it clear how these burials happened? 
um, was it the medical examiner's office? I mean, did the bodies who who actually ended up finding bodies, and then how did they end up in a mass grave? So a lot of times, funeral homes will take care of the actual burials themselves. And in this case, I'm not really sure um, what funeral home was being used or not used. Um, I just know that there were there were problems with the medical. Well, there it's a coroner's office. So there's a problem with the coroner's office, and then there was also problems with uh, the funeral home as well. Yeah, that leaves a lot of unanswered questions about you know what. It seems like things went wrong at several steps in that in that process, from finding to burying, and you know, protocol was disregarded, perhaps. Um, but I think we're going to stop the conversation right there and we're going to take a quick music break. And then when we come back, we'll continue talking to Kelsey about her research. All right. So welcome back to Anthro Alert here on Bulls Radio, WSF 89.7, HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide at uh, on TuneIn dot, TuneIn.com and on the TuneIn app. On this hour of Anthro Alert, we are looking at forensic anthropology and our guest is a Ph.D. student here at University of South Florida, Kelsey Henschel Fay. And uh, so far, we've been discussing the work that she undertook during her master's thesis while in uh, San Marcos at uh, Texas, State, Texas State University. Um, so, yeah, let's, you know, let's get right back into that conversation. Kelsey, can you tell us um, some of the things you learned throughout the year that you worked on this project? Yeah. So, uh, something. One of the major things that we learned um, was, and I sort of touched on this earlier, was that there were a lot of violations of procedure down the line for several different um, organizations. Uh, I, I talked briefly about autopsied individuals versus non-autopsied individuals. So by law, you need to have an autopsy. Even if the autopsy, if, if all you have are skeletal remains, a forensic anthropologist looking at those remains is considered a skeletal autopsy. So even if you just have skeletal remains, by law, you're supposed to have a forensic anthropologist looking at the remains, if not still a forensic pathologist with a medical examiner's office or a coroner. So we know that individuals were not autopsied when they should have been autopsied and that personal effects were never searched, which sort of touches on the fact that it seems like yes there there was there were issues with n- not enough personnel being overwhelmed i completely understand that but i also uh believe and also this is from personal experience that there was bias in there um as well and uh, part with with biases getting in the way, one of the problems that we encountered was that we at Texas State we had a huge issue with submitting DNA samples, and the University of North Texas has a federally funded grant to sub, to run unidentified persons DNA and to run it against. Uh, family reference samples, so family members that have submitted DNA samples. And this this money comes from the federal government, and it's free. So it's, it's especially useful for when you have a small uh, sheriff's department, police department, what have you, that doesn't have a lot of funding. 
that way they can submit and it's free and it's not costly because DNA can cost anywhere from $500 to $1,000 to run a single sample. And I don't think people really realize that. So the University of North Texas has this, has this funded money to be able to run samples, but they were refusing to run DNA samples for these individuals. And the reason for that is that they said that they would not allow foreign nationals to submit DNA samples to their database. But the problem with that is that these individuals were found on U.S. soil, and you're presumptively saying that they're not U.S. citizens, but technically we don't know that, right? So these individuals, they were refusing to run DNA on them because they were saying that they were foreign nationals, but how do we know that they're foreign nationals? Because they're unidentified. Um, and so we were really seeing biases get in the way, and um, to this day they won't allow uh, foreign nationals to submit DNA samples unless you have a one-to-one -one match, like in that case that I talked about earlier where we had a family where we had family reference samples and we were pretty sure that it was her. We also found that there was a lot of there was a distinct lack of respect for individuals, even in death. So 101 when you're when you're working with deceased individuals, this is still a person, and you respect that person. And many of these individuals, we kept finding this green staining on the bones. And this is not common. You don't see this. Um, in archaeological context, sometimes you'll have green staining, and that's because of, you know, metal or copper when it um, sort of disintegrates and it kind of starts to break down. It can it leaches onto the bones a little bit. So it makes sense from an archaeological perspective, but these individuals are all recently deceased. So why is there this green staining? And we could not figure this out, and it took a couple months of seeing it for us to realize that one time we opened up a body bag and there were gloves sitting right there. And when we picked up the gloves, directly underneath where the gloves were, on the bones was that green staining. So whoever originally handled the bodies that buried them, when they put them when they placed the individual in the body bag, they then took off their latex gloves and threw them into the body bag like it was a trash can and then zipped it up and buried them, which is not something that I've seen anywhere else. And I've worked in several medical examiner's offices and worked at, on lots of different forensic cases. And this was something that I had never seen before. Um, and so it's, it's just blatant disregard for a person, even in death. It doesn't matter that it's potentially a foreign national, in my opinion. Um, so those are really the major things that we were learning. Um, since I've left there, they have changed protocol for uh, when unidentified persons are found there um, and they're deceased. Now they, rather than be buried, they go directly to Texas State University. Uh, or a medical examiner's office where then they're, you know, they have an autopsy procedure done and DNA is taken. And so there, there's more of a, an actual procedure being followed at this point. So they have changed that, which is great. 
Wow, that's that's a lot to take in. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Woo. Um. Well, I mean, it's it's good that that things are changing, right? You know, some of yeah. that protocol is being readjusted, and uh, you know, Texas State is kind of taking the lead of just kind of bypassing some of the middlemen, so to speak. You know, and just mm-hmm. getting getting those uh, unidentified individuals. And I do want to say, too, that it's not just Texas State. Mm. Um, Baylor and UND have, they went down and they did the original exhumations, but all of them have collectively gone back down to exhume that entire cemetery. Mm. And there are interns that then have been helping out with everything. So Texas State is sort of the, the hub of what's happening, but it's definitely a project bringing in lots of different students right. and researchers from different universities. So is that particular cemetery, I guess, dedicated just to unidentified individuals that are found? Or, I mean, do you do you know if, if not? That's... I'm not I'm not entirely certain, okay. but I do know that that's where a lot of migrants were buried. So okay. I don't know if it's yeah. sort of there's only a few cemeteries for the county and that's why. Mm. Um, but that's primarily where the migrants were being buried. Mm. Yeah, I think we're going to uh, shift gears here a little bit from what you did to what you're doing now. Um, and so there's I get some uh, big opportunities, I guess, coming to USF uh, specifically for forensic sciences and uh, forensic anthropology students. Um, we're actually getting a, a body farm here at USF are affiliated with USF, right? So I think we're, yeah, it's it's ours. So we're the seventh university to get a body farm, correct? Yes, we are. Okay, mm-hmm. okay and then, so there's six others across the, the U.S. Can you tell us um, a little bit about, well, one, what a, what is a body farm, I guess? We'll, we'll start with that. Okay, um, so a... So we are the, the seventh in the country. The first... Uh, was in was at the University of Tennessee, and that's where uh, it's called an outdoor decomposition facility. Um, and a Patricia Cornwall novel called it the Body Farm, talking about it at Tennessee, and the name kind of just stuck. And what it is is people who want to donate their body to science, but it's different than if you're donating your body to say a medical school where then they do cadaver research and they're doing dissection. Um, It's more donating your body to forensic science. So we're studying the decomposition process. And this is really important because different climates, different uh, areas of the the country but even within states and whatnot have will have individuals decompose at different rates so someone that dies in tennessee might decompose at a different rate than someone that dies in florida and one of the major questions that we get any time we work with law enforcement on cases is how long has this person been dead that's what they want to know because that helps narrow down the missing persons list. If this person's only been dead a couple days, well, then does it, it can't match this person that was just reported missing yesterday. But if this person's been dead, you know, three months, um, does it, who on the missing persons list does this match? 
And so we, so these, these body farms, if you will, are ways for us to not only test baseline decomposition rates for, you know, different places like here in Florida, where we have a subtropical climate, very different from, say, the, the body farm that they have at Texas State or Tennessee. Um, and there's now, they're in um, Illinois, there's one in northern Michigan. All of these are drastically different places. And so here in Florida, we've, we recently st- started our own. And it is, uh, we started taking donors in 2016. We took two skeletal donors. They were already skeletonized. And then in 2017, we actually have had 13 people donate their bodies. And so we're, we're doing research not only on just baseline decomposition, how long does it take for someone to decompose, but we're also doing research on looking at how do you find clandestine burials and how long does it take someone to decompose in a buried environment versus someone that, you know, was killed and left in a field and they're on the ground surface. Um, We also have the capability to do different research projects. So if law enforcement, you know, wants us to potentially look at people uh, rolled up in like tarps or, you know, anything that they might come across in the actual, uh, like in an actual case, then we can replicate it and see, does this match up or how long possibly has this person been dead? So you can kind of set up your own scenarios. Like this person was found in the water or, or something like that. Yeah, and we've what's really great is that for this project we've partnered with the Pasco County Sheriff's Office. So the facility is located it's the um Adam Kennedy Memorial Forensics Field and it's located um up in Pasco County on county land and Pasco County Sheriff's Office has been wonderful about helping us out and research ideas and so we have a lot of great things planned that are coming up. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So, so I have a question. So how do you, like, how do you recruit um, people to donate? <laughs> so it actually doesn't take much on our part to recruit anyone. Uh, we are sought out a lot. Um, I am the uh, program coordinator, and so I get emails daily and phone calls daily about people that want to know more about the facility, want to, you know, donate their body to science, Um And I just sort of explain, you know, who's eligible to donate and who's not eligible to donate, what type of research we do, and then kind of, you know, a lot of people find it appealing for several different reasons, but everyone is, has an individual opinion on it. So, well, that's, um, yeah, that's interesting because if I'm thinking, oh, what are my options to donate my body? Well, you know, I could donate to like a medical school for like, you know, dissection or, um, you know, organ donation, I could donate, like, organs, right, if they're if I, they're still good at whatever time that I happen to die. Um, and now, like, forensic science, and then, of course, uh, this one I knew about for a little bit, like, donating to that bodies exhibit where I could be plasticized for all eternity. <laughs> so what's, what's interesting, though, is that um, organ donation, for a lot of people, that will – that will preclude you from donating to a medical school, right? You still have to have your heart in order for science to dissect it. 
um, with us, you can still be an organ and a tissue donor and still donate to our facility, which is kind of cool. So we'll we'll still take you even if you know you've saved you know hundreds of lives by donating your organs. So I have uh, I have one more question here for you. How did you guys go about um, finding the land? Like, did you have any? Like, did you have any pre-existing sort of qualifications that the land needed in order for you guys to start this farm? Like, did it need to be varied and, you know, there's like some hills or, you know, there's some water here, you know, or was it just, does it, does it matter, I guess? So, uh, we didn't really have, so there weren't too many qualifications on what was going on with, you know, land necessarily. We wanted it to be able to represent a Florida environment. And so we have three and a half acres that are fenced in. And uh, within that that fenced in area, we have treed, like a, a wooded area. And we have an open to the sun area, which are, which are very interesting for looking at different um, taphonomic agents or things that help the body decompose, mm. like... Uh, birds like vultures right Mm -hmm. Um, or other types of um, scavengers or any animals that might be in there Um, so we not only have an area that's wooded and open but then we also have uh, in the wooded area itself is um, sort of wetlandy so it's it's kind of interesting because then we can also get that wetland data so Florida is like half underwater anyway, so it's kind of interesting to be <laughs> yeah. able to have individuals, mm-hmm. you know, that we can s- simulate that environment, if you will. Mm. Um, briefly, can I also talk about the second part of our research? I yeah. Know. Okay, I'm yeah, sorry. So not only do we – we do all – I've been talking all about this decomposition, um, but what do we do with individuals once they're done decomposing? So we will – clean up the skeletal remains because that's all that's left once they're done decomposing and we will uh, curate that into a donated skeletal collection uh, here at USF and so that donated skeletal collection is then used by researchers and to teach students both undergrads and graduate students how teaching them osteology and forensic anthropological research methods so it's it's definitely a two-part thing to donating your body and Mm. it's going to be used forever Mm. wow so i imagine that's you know that can be a really i guess fulfilling thing for for people to do maybe to like donate their knowledge to to help students and to further their knowledge and you know kind of help identify other people perhaps so um it can be a lot of helpful things with that so i think we're going to uh take one more music break and when we come back we'll wrap up this hour of anthropology Hello, everyone. Hello, Bulls. Welcome back to Anthro Alert. You're listening to WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide at the TuneIn.com and TuneIn app. Um, You can learn more about our show and our radio station in general at BullsRadio.org. We are featuring Kelsey Henschel-Fay today as our guest forensic anthropologist speaker who's been talking about her work here in Florida on developing a body farm and who also spoke about her master's research identifying migrant remains on the border, on the Texas-Mexico border. Um, 
So to wrap up this hour, Kelsey, I think one, one thing that I, I would like to ask you is what drew you in the first place to forensic anthropology? Um, how did you get drawn to what, what you described as sounding to be quite difficult work? I mean, not just physically demanding, but emotionally demanding as well. Yeah. So when I first got into this field, I did not realize that it would be you know, emotionally draining because it it is some days, but it's not all the time. Um, I do want to say that. Uh, When I was in undergrad, I had no idea what I wanted to do, which I feel like many undergrads can relate to that. Been there. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And so I took a, I, I had an undeclared major and I took a wide variety of classes to see what spoke to me. And one of the classes that I took was a biological anthropology class. And I honestly, I took it on a whim. I'm not going to lie. And I, in this biological anthropology class, the, the last unit of that class was discussing forensic anthropology. And I kind of said like, wow, this is really cool. And, you know, this, this professor that I had would use, you know, case examples. And it was like, you know, this is really neat. And this is also right around the time that the show Bones came out. So, you know, that that also was in the media, which, like, the show Bones is very not real. But at the time, I was so enamored. But it's so entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I spoke to the professor, which, as a lecturer here at USF, uh, communication is always key with your professor. Like, talk to them about your interests, and mm. they will help guide you. Mm-hmm. And I, I talked to my professor and he said, these are the classes that you should take and see if, you know, this is something that you want to pursue more. And so honestly, that's how I got into it, just kind of stumbled across it and then fell in love with it. Um, and then as I've as I've progressed in my graduate studies, it, you know, it's become originally it was just kind of this is cool. And now it's really become like a big part of my life where you know, you're, I'm, I'm working to identify the unidentified. So it's, it's, it can be emotionally exhausting, but it's so rewarding and it's so fulfilling. And every, every case is, you know, a a puzzle to be solved. Who is this person and how can, what, what can I lend to this case, whether it's a cold case or a, a forensic case, what can I add to it to help identify who this person is. How are forensic anthropologists positioned compared to, say, someone working in the coroner's office or a medical examiner in in a way where you can have something unique to contribute? Yeah, so we are we are sort of aides in the medical legal field where we, we are mediators and we kind of go between law enforcement and the medical examiner's office or the coroner's office. Um, and they kind of draw us in as, uh, experts, you know, they, they call us in only on certain cases, but realistically, you know, we've been able to help on other cases as well too. And so we, we kind of act as this mediator. And even at some times where we're, interacting with family members as well so we we kind of have to put our like our hands in all different pies to try to you know straddle all these different things so you're able to do that as an anthropologist in a way where maybe a coroner 
wouldn't be able to? Yeah, sometimes, I hate to say it, but just sometimes people in law enforcement or the medical examiner's office can kind of get so, such tunnel vision with like, well, that's outside of my job purview. Whereas I feel like in anthropology, we really tend to adapt to changing environments and circumstances. And so I just take it with a grain of salt and I run with it. All right. I think that's all the time we have today. So Kelsey, thank you for coming on and talking with us, um, speaking with us about your research. Um, I don't know much about forensic anthropology, so this was very educational for me. Um, realizing what you do on a daily basis is, I commend you for that because, you know, <laughs> that, yeah, it's, it's tough work. It's definitely tough work. Um, well, thank you for having me. Yeah, you're very welcome. If you want to come back, please feel free to do so. Um, and so we're going to transition into music and we're going to reassess and, and prepare for our second hour of the show. So please stay tuned and enjoy some smooth tunes. And then when we come back, we will have a master's student from USF Preston, and he will be talking about his research. So stay with us. <laughs> 